This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. First up, we follow up on the mounting anxiety around the return to school. Yesterday's infusion of federal cash has done little to quell those fears because there's no specific directive on lowering class size. The province will be using some of the money to hire temporary teachers, and that raises yet another worry. In addition, to worrying about their families and their students. Teachers, especially older teachers, are worried about their own health. I have two on the line with me now. Tim, a retired occasional teacher who substitutes in the Kingston area, and Neil is a retired secondary school teacher with the Upper Grand District School Board. Welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, let's start with Tim, because you have still been teaching. In this uh, state of affairs, uh, do you plan to continue filling in? Yeah, well, I think I'm I'm a bit unique. I'm probably going to hold back uh, just because of concerns. Uh, My context is I'm a a retired supply teacher who is a little bit vulnerable with uh, type 2 diabetes, so that's something that people sometimes don't think about. And uh, I'll probably have to wait it out despite uh, really needing the supplemental income. Uh, I'm in that situation as well. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't think you're unique at all. I'm, I know that a lot of retired teachers uh, supply teach. And I, I think that a lot of them will be holding back because of the situation. Uh, do you have any colleagues yeah, and I think everybody's feeling it, how dicey it is. You have to remember that you're going into multiple schools. Well, that's, that is the thing that I have not heard addressed. And let's bring in Neil Orford, because I know, Neil, that you are in contact with a lot of other teachers. So here's the thing. The one thing that we learned from the long-term care crisis is that one of the vectors we had workers, personal support workers, working in multiple homes, and that was a big reason that the virus spread. So here, supply teachers work in many schools, but I have not heard anything uh, about a move to limit that. Yeah, Libby, I think that's a serious concern, and I certainly understand what Tim is saying. Uh, My daughter is a supply teacher as well, Um, and uh, uh, we've got no... uh, 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 appreciable plans that have been laid out for how supply teachers to conduct their 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 day. We don't know how they're going to be hired. Um, we don't know how they're going to be distributed or whether uh, schools, you know, teachers will be assigned to specific schools and limited to a, a patch of, say, two to three schools that they can only report to. All of that is just speculation at this point. Well, uh, it's a little bit late in the day for it to be speculation, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, my understanding of the way things work now with supply teaching is that you log on in the morning and, and you see what what schools need a supply teacher. Yeah, and, and Tim can probably speak to this very well. Most of the systems are automated systems at this point. 
Um, and um, I think supply teachers are sitting in a particularly precarious situation, not not knowing whether those systems uh, uh, are going to be are going to continue or whether there's a substitute. Pardon the pun, a substitute system that's going to replace those automated uh, calls. Mm-hmm. Tim, yeah, and I was going to say, pre-COVID, at the best of times, you had walking into the day, and you're finding out that uh, you are going to be doing four classes instead of three because uh, just the shortage of supply teachers you're, you're needing to fill in, and so you have a full day anyway. So that just adds to the consternation, I think. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other concerns, Tim, uh, beyond the whole business of, of the fact that uh, a supply teacher would be walking into potentially lots of different schools uh, and, and encountering different, I mean, the kids are going to be cohorted still, but you might get different cohorts. Yeah, well, I, I think just uh, alluding to the fact that the last minute changes, anything that came down the pipe this week, I only got uh, an email on Wednesday yesterday really outlining things. So it's the first time I'd really heard what was going on. Plus, I knew that they were switching to the all-day, one-period instruction, which is uh, that's uh, not just painful for the kids, but supply teachers, it's it's a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> you how so? It, you know, uh, you're walking into sometimes uh, behavior situations or close contact situations in, uh, in special ed situations. And so there's a real uh, concern about uh, that the length of day and uh, uh, being in there replacing a teacher, and you're going to see a lot of a lot of teachers out, obviously. Uh, Neil, I, I want to get into that because one of the risks is with prolonged contact. So I get that they're cohorting the kids, but still, again, the prolonged doesn't the the prolonged contact increases the risk of infection. Well, it really does, and we, uh, I, I think so much of this was understood and known months ago, uh, and we would have, uh, I would assume we would have expected that a lot of planning would have taken place over the summertime, and of course, te- of course teachers are planners. They, they, they uh, design their, their days and their lessons uh, uh, with a predictability for students, uh, a, a fairly strong structure for students, and that's just not been possible this summer. Uh, we're at a point now where many teachers are now being asked to increase uh, uh, their teaching load from 75 minutes, a, a, predict, a predictable structure of 75 minutes, to as much as 225 minutes for a class per day. Uh, and literally, there's been no uh, time to prepare for that. And most teachers are not really uh, aware of how to, <laughs> how to manage that increase for students. Uh-huh. Um, I want to give the numbers out again in case uh, we have any teachers or teachers' families listening and they want to contribute to this conversation. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I am talking to Neil Orford and Tim in Kingston, uh, both retired teachers. Tim still supply teaching. Uh, but probably holding back this year. And we're talking about the, in, in high school anyway, the one, the one subject at a time. How is that different in terms of uh, preparing for that length on one subject? Well, the last minute changes, as Neil said, uh, as a high school teacher, you're, you're, you're planning the whole semester before you teach it. You're, you're, at the very least, you're pacing it. And so all pacing has gone out the window as far as that's concerned. Uh-huh. What it, 
what is the purpose of pacing? Well, you just got to, uh, you're looking at your curriculum, you're looking at the days of teaching available, and uh, you're wanting to find <laughs> interesting things to do in between the curriculum items, and you want to make best use of the time. So you really, you have to kind of, at, at one point or another, you're gonna, you have to, you have to see till December. You have to see till, you know, how far you're going to get. I, I, I was a history teacher, so I was constantly battling with such uh, dense material that I was always racing to try to get it all in at the same time making it interesting. Uh, I got my degree in history, so there, there you, you go. go. Uh, but in terms of attention span, we know that, you know, because of uh, the That's internet the thing, and yeah. tablets, attention spans are shorter than ever. So how do you think it's, it's going to work to begin with, Neil? Well, one of the difficulties is that we don't really have a strong sense of whether the models that are being put forward, and, and we have to understand they're distinct from board to board to board. There's no... There's no uh, comprehensive uh, plan for all boards. Every board is approaching this uh, somewhat differently. And we do really don't understand what, uh, what uh, asynchronous or asynchronous learning uh, is going to do uh, but over... You, over, you have uh, to explain uh, that in lay terms. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, it's all new lexicon. These are all new words. And I was a history teacher as well, so I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm always aware of language and how it's being used. Uh, um, these systems are designed uh, for online learning or remote learning, as it's often called, where students would be in a class uh, um, where they would be on, on, on computers, on laptops, on iPads, uh, doing their learning remotely, perhaps with a teacher doing some passive supervision or perhaps not. It's really hard to tell. Um, and also there is a system where some students would be physically in class in a cohort of perhaps 15, if we're lucky. And then some students sort of beamed into the classroom on the wall, on a screen, um, like a Zoom call, who would be off learning uh, the same material as uh, uh, the teacher is teaching in the class. They would just be doing it remotely. So these are two models that uh, school boards have been uh, really troubled trying to, uh, trying to adapt to. And as Tim says, pacing is a, is a big issue, and it's very difficult. Uh, I, I think it would be very difficult if we had a year to really plan how this would look. Uh, but in fact, we many teachers have about two weeks to figure out how this is going to work. Mm-hmm. Is, is there an issue with teaching so much more material in a day? Yeah, I would say there is. I, I would say uh, Tim's point about uh, selecting material and identifying uh, uh, the themes, the broad themes that you want to teach uh, in a day is really complicated by by the by the burden of having to plan for perhaps 225 minutes for one class, uh, you know, some of it asynchronous, some of it synchronous, um, how much homework is assigned for that, uh, what is the capability of the students you have in your class who may have learning difficulties or learning disabilities. Uh, these are all questions that take a great deal of time to plan and manage, and traditionally school boards do a very good job with teachers of organizing this, but certainly not in a matter of days. Uh, Neil, I know that you're in touch with a lot of other teachers. So at this point, would you say that they're more concerned about getting a handle on the material or are they more concerned about uh, their health? Oh, boy, that's a great question. I think there's, uh, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of anxiety about both of those. Uh, I think it really depends on the age of the teacher and their, their family situation. Uh, 
many teachers I know, you know, are, are uh, towards the end of their careers. I retired in 2017, but they have uh, elderly parents that they have to care for. And if they're going into these new, newly created bubbles with uh, students, uh, are they allowed to see their parents? Uh, what what goes on in the home is very much uh, front and center in their mind, but not divorced too far from from how they're managing, how they have to manage this for their students as well. It's a real burden. And uh, Tim, uh, we're, what would you like to leave us with, Tim? Oh, I think another big concern that keeps coming up, but I think particularly with the last minute changes, uh, ventilation in, in schools has never been great. Um, I, in my 30 years of teaching, I, I was never, uh, never confident with the air quality in high schools. It's just, just nature of the beast a little bit, but uh, the one school I was at for 23 years, it was a kind of a joke every year. Every summer you'd go in and you'd see the maintenance workers fixing the ventilation systems, supposedly, and it, uh, they're still fighting that in that same school. It, it's an older school, but uh, just the idea, it, 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 you've got day-long experience in a classroom, one classroom too hot, one classroom too cold, air not filtering, uh, opening windows, that kind of seems silly a little bit to me that uh, that's not going to happen very soon, that you're going to be able to open windows for fresh air. Too much fresh air, too much flow might be a concern for safety as well. So that's a, that's a big issue. And are they going to solve that problem in eight days now that they've got the funding? No, they didn't do it in 30 years. Okay, yeah. Um, they, they say that they've already started with it, but that remains to be seen. And Neil, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think there's a real disparity between urban and rural Ontario uh, that, that's uh, that's showing up in sort of stark uh, stark ways uh, through this. Um, and busing, of course, and transportation is a huge issue uh, where I am in, in, in south central Ontario. Uh, thrusting students onto buses uh, um, and and the whole protocol for transportation is very complicated. Uh, at the best of times, uh, this year I, I, I can only imagine complicated by a factor of a hundred. Uh, where will our supply bus drivers come from if uh, if uh, bus drivers go down? Mm. I think these are you know these are critical infrastructure decisions that needed to be dealt with back in June and then sorted out over the summertime along with the technology issue to give parents the kind of uh, comfort that they need uh, if in fact we are going to open up schools and that decision was taken uh, uh, you know I guess on July 30th and. And uh, and and here we are on having this conversation on August the twenty seventh. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for your perspective, Neil Orford in Orangeville and Tim in Ki- in Kingston. I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you, Libby. We are now going to bring in Harvey Bischoff. He's the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Hello, Harvey. Uh, good afternoon. So uh, yesterday, uh, there was an infusion of cash. What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, certainly grateful that the feds have stepped in uh, and uh, you know taken a significant step to partially fill the gaping hole that the provincial government uh, had left in its back-to-school plan. Um, so, you know, it, it can certainly um, only help. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm going to get right to the thing that seems to be concerning us the most, and uh, that is, I saw when the in the government breakdown, it said seventy million for temporary teachers. That sounds good, but 
what we know from long-term care is that one of the vectors of spread was workers coming in after working in multiple homes. So what's happening in terms of that? Are, are the schools planning on limiting the amount of places a supply teacher can, can uh, teach or, or have they not even had a chance to deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I'd say first of all, the, the fact that only seventy million of the of the first uh, the first installment of about uh, of about three hundred and eighty million, so less than twenty percent, is being dedicated to increasing the number of staff and thereby reduce um, reducing class sizes, which was the priority strategy against sick kids. And once again, this government is ignoring uh, the medical advice that they claim they're listening to. Um, on a board-by-board -board basis, there are efforts being made to work out protocols between the employer and and the you know union locals uh, about limiting um, uh, the the number of buildings in which uh, casual or occasional or supply teachers and and other uh, education workers might work. But it, it, it ha there's been no uniformity. There's been no direction from the ministry. There's been a complete abdication of responsibility in that regard. And so you have both those those people who who you know substitute in for for other workers who are off sick, but you also have education workers. Let's say like a, a psychologist, for example, who might work in multiple schools, might be in five different schools uh, over the course of a week. And this government, um, when they talk about a hundred student cohort, they they also admit that that cohort doesn't include the educators. Um, that are that are working with them. So if you have somebody who pierces multiple hundred student, you know, cohorts, which are too large to be really meaningful in themselves, um, then we've already, you know, significantly added risk uh, to the whole situation. Do you think it's the place of the government or the individual school boards to regulate the number of places a supply teacher can teach? And and is any kind of limit on that? Does that infringe on your contract? So, the, you know, the implementation could be done at the local level, but the, the abdication of responsibility, the abdication of a leadership role by this ministry is is truly shocking. There should be guidance and and direction uh, coming from the center, and it's not. But, you know, if it were, then it could be implemented at the local level. We have um, been very clear that we would... Um, so first of all, I don't expect that it would, that, you know, wouldn't, um, it wouldn't necessarily lead to collective agreement, uh, issues. But we've been very clear that, um, we will work with school board employers and make amendments to collective agreement provisions if those lead to a safer and more effective return, uh, to school. I mean, obviously we want to keep our members safe, but, but students and the families they go home to are, are, uh, you know, a, a priority concern for us as well. And if that could be achieved by limiting um, the number of different work sites that a, that a, a worker uh, works in within a period of time, and, and there are ways of achieving that, um, you know, that can be structured in that way. Um, but it doesn't seem like the, the ministry has turned its mind to it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, I mean, I think uh, that's something that would keep everybody safer, no matter who uh, figures it out. Hundred percent, and and that's why we are trying to work it out at the local level. Um, but it would, you know, it would be uh, it would be better done if there was leadership from the ministry, um, and uh, and it might require some resources as well. I mean, if you're going to restrict people's access to work, you might have to do what you did, what was done with uh, with workers in long term care homes. 
uh, pay them enough that they don't have to cobble together jobs at multiple work sites in order to, uh, 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 you know, still be able to uh, make a living. And, and those sorts of adjustments absolutely need the support from the ministry. Do substitute teachers actually, uh, in general, you know, make a whole salary from substitute teaching? I would think not. It is. Um, so, look, it, it's, it's, it's frequently precarious work. Um, the more fortunate ones get long-term, uh, you know, covering, let's say, for a pregnancy leave or something, and they know they might have a year of work out of that. Others are are cobbling together day to day assignments, and but it doesn't mean that it's not their whole uh, their whole employment. Uh, it's just not, uh, you know, it's just it's uh, it's a tough and uh, it's a tough way to make a living. Uh, Harvey, I, I'm very curious about one thing, and I was actually trying to get numbers from the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund. Uh, if any of them are listening, please call us back because I'm sure they have the information, and that is. How many teachers are retiring, would you say, perhaps earlier than they really want to because of all this? I know that on a normal year in Ontario, about 4,500 teachers retire. Do you have any sense of that from your union? So I don't have the absolute numbers, but I do, um, I do know that, you know, those numbers do fluctuate year to year on an annual basis for a variety of reasons. And this year, if anything, and, and I would say counterintuitively, they are, those numbers are down a little bit. Um, so, you know, is that purely a demographic thing? I don't know. Um, I have heard that is certainly you know, anecdotally some uh, teachers who completed, you know, last year in this distance learning environment um, had a desire to get back into the classroom and not end their careers. You know, they, they wanted to end their careers on uh, having taught students face to face in the, you know, in the best learning environments uh, that they have that they were used to working in prior to the pandemic. Why do you think the government is so reluctant to issue a directive on class size? I mean, you know, if you look at yesterday's announcement, they are, you know, injecting a lot of cash into the system. I can't answer for them. It's shocking to me that less than 20% of that money would be going towards uh, class size reduction. Uh, And so much of the money... um, is going towards things that they already claim they had fully funded. You know, when it comes to, to cleaning and sanitization, they, they told us a few, you know, they, they've been telling us for weeks, we've done everything that's required. And yet when they get this money, they turn around and pour it into that. And I'm not saying that that's not an area that needs that money. Um, but, you know, to claim previously that, that it was all fully funded and now to say this is, this is the priority area for the money does seem a bit, uh, well, confusing at best. Um, but the failure to put money into reducing class sizes, um, when, when the report from sick kids told them it was the priority strategy, um, it's unconscionable and, and to me inexplicable. Uh huh. And so, uh, if, if you had to have a, um, you know, a, a pyramid of, of, uh, things that have to be taken care of before school starts in less than two weeks, what, what are the top three things? Yeah, so so uh, I'd say number one would be reducing the size of, size of of classes so that there could be the appropriate physical distancing that is, let's face it, required in every other public space in the province. And by some magical thinking, um, they're telling us it's not required in classrooms, and I I don't understand that. Um, 
the application of some standards when it comes to ventilation would be uh, absolutely critical. So we have asked the Ministry of Labor, by what standards are you inspecting ventilation? And the answer was that none. Um, there are there are well-known industry standards out there. There is a group called ASHRAE, uh, American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, Air Conditioning Engineers, who have published standards for school and university reopening regarding ventilation. The government has ignored that. So, so they need to look at ventilation. Um, and I would say they need to look at, at busing because uh, right now um, we've seen that they are still, you know, the, the last I had heard, they would, they would be allowing school buses to be fully packed, which means with, uh, with younger children, it's often three to a seat. And so the whole notion of, of uh, distancing and cohorting is out the window at that point. Well, they have $70 million for transportation. Yes, yeah, so I'll be interested to see the details of that um, and and whether or not that will significantly amend the plan that they had in place prior, uh, because the previous plan was absolutely insufficient. And frankly, I wish I knew more about their about their um, you know the details of this spending. But once again, um, they uh, shut us out of yesterday's technical briefing, something that I've never seen a government in the past do to not include the education union in technical briefings so that we could ask questions on behalf of, you know, the frontline educators who are going to be implementing these plans. So they did a technical briefing for the media and, and, um, and, you know, quite pointedly uh, excluded the education unions from that. And, and that to me is, is so counterproductive and unhealthy. Okay, well, I guess uh, relations not great between the teachers' unions and the government. Final quick question for you. Uh, what's happening with your request from the Ministry of Labor and Workplace Safety Orders? Yeah, so, so I haven't heard back yet. Um, we've said that we, uh, we need to hear back by tomorrow or we will make application to the Labor Board um, for those orders. Uh, if the Minister of Labor doesn't pursue them on his own, uh, we'll follow the legal avenues that we have uh, at our disposal. Okay, Harvey Bischoff from the OSSTF, thank you so much. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Okay, before we take a break, I'm going to take a couple of very quick calls from some listeners who've been waiting very patiently. We've got Michael on the highway. Hi, Michael. Libby, good morning. Good afternoon. Or or good afternoon. Thanks for correcting me. You know, Libby, I think we've been sadly let down by teachers' unions, boards of education, and the teachers themselves in in the matter of uh, implementing back-to-school policies and procedures. They've known about this and pandemic since March. Uh, what did they meet and come up with in March? Nothing. How about April? Nothing. May? Nothing. June? Nothing. And then finally they started to wake up to the fact that, hey, the kids are probably going to go back to school in September. What are we going to do about it? Well, they came up with nothing. And I suppose to shield their embarrassment over the fact that they just aren't per- performing in a professional manner they're trying to stick the government with blame on, on for this. Oh, the government's to blame for all of this. Oh, the Ministry of Labor hasn't acted on uh, implementing ASHRAE ventilation recommendations. It's just the teachers, the unions, the boards are all covering themselves up. They sat at home drawing full salaries all during the pandemic, and now they're crying the blues. Okay. And I really find that as just a cynical downright dirty way of dealing. They have deceived the public. They have let the public down. 
Oh, okay. I really think they should, something should be done with all of them. Okay, Michael, I think we know where you stand. Thanks for your call. And a very quick uh, comment from Bob in Etobicoke. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? Fine, how My are you? My view is uh, I think that they should keep the schools closed until after the Christmas holiday for a number of reasons. One is that there's not maybe no daycare for mothers for, for their kids that have to stay home. So I would close the schools till then, maybe put some online education together, and I would probably lay off the teachers for that period of time because uh, it's getting to be the money that they have to put out to put the kids in the school for this three months. It's only three months. It's maybe needed for for other things like putting the ventilation and, and systems into the nursing homes. We cannot spend all of our money on education. And when you go to a store and a students who graduated in the last two or three years can't even make change when you're, when you're buying something, there's something wrong with the system. Okay, and I Bob. I know that, but I would close the schools until Christmas time. Okay, Bob. I've, I've, Bob. And that's what I would do. Okay. Bye. Thanks for that. Thanks, bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.